0: Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Gary, and welcome to the second season of It's Personal. Okay, good. This is going to be really dope, but I don't want any of <laughs> you <laughs> putting yourself out there as a practitioner. We're growing at Not learning. Not at all. My name is Kwame Ambalia. Uh, I'm an author. Hi, I'm Padma Venkatraman, the
1: author of The British <laughs> Home. Sure, yeah. My name's Natasha um, Diaz. Co-switching
0: and all those things. I mean, all of that.
1: Like, all the time. I mean, he's still on the road all the time, but you know, like as a new mom, the relationship
0: that I have cultivated uh, from there. Uh, I'm so happy. excited to talk to you. <laughs> this is amazing. Right. This is so fun.
1: <laughs> we are live.
0: We are live. All right. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of It's Personal. We are on season two, and I'm super excited. And the cool thing about this like, podcast in general is that I'm very lucky to have people that I enjoy so much just say yes to have a very much, I don't, I don't want to say random conversation with me, but a conversation about who they are. Um, would you mind introducing yourself today?
1: Sure thing. My name is Christy. I use she, her pronouns. I live in, in Dakana, which is the Abinaki word for homeland in the state of Vermont. I spend most of my time with incredible sixth graders, seventh and eighth graders sometimes too. And I teach about five miles from my childhood home.
0: Wow, and I'm just gonna put a little plug in there that I enjoy absolutely everything that Christy posts online, so (laughs) just in case, and we'll talk about it at the end where we can find her, but she is just lovely. Um, One of the things I wanna talk to you about today is just like, I think the people that know you online, um, very informative, very much um, a people person. Um, You're just, you're a very lovely person in general. Um, it, like how did that how did that happen? What did your um, <laughs> family life look like? How did what did it look like for you growing up? Let let the people oh know. Oh my
1: gosh. Well first of all that's the kindest thing ever. I definitely don't <laughs> I, I don't always do that. So thank you. Sometimes I feel very abrasive. Um so childhood, my childhood felt idyllic. I grew up um, in a town called Shelburne, Vermont, and I was so incredibly fortunate. I grew up across the lawn from a house that my grandfather had built and he and my grandmother, which was his third wife by some accounts, fourth by others, uh, but very much I think the love of his life. So they they had horses and had quite a bit of land Um, in this sweet town. And so when my parents met, they asked about subdividing the land and then my parents built a house on what had been that kind of farmland. And so I grew up right across the lawn, being able to run over to my grandparents' house. I remember many, many nights where my grandmother would walk across the lawn to have a cup of tea with my mom. And later in her life, my mom and I would walk across the lawn in the other direction. Um, My... Parents were very much involved in my brother and I's life. I have a younger brother. He's two years younger than I am, but has always acted a little bit like older brother protector and was an amazing athlete throughout his life. And so, yeah, things were really good. I spent a lot of time outside, a lot of time there's really sweet vernal pool, which means it's really just wet in the spring and then dries up in the summer. And so my brother and I would catch uh, tadpoles and frogs and you know, it was kind of the Vermont go outside childhood that mm-hmm. um, some people still have.
0: That's awesome. And I'm, um, my, I guess my next question for you is, how much of that um, childhood have you um, kind of fostered into how your teaching is, how you go about your daily life like today?
1: Sure, I think that What I think about now are the things that I didn't think about then. So when I say it was idyllic, I also, there's so much missing from my childhood that now I can understand as loss. And at the time I just didn't know it could exist. And so what I mean by that is I didn't have the sense of myself as a racialized being. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand what it meant to exist in the world in a white body. I didn't understand what it meant to exist in a place where it was so predominantly white, where my teachers all looked like me, where they, I spoke the same language, where the books and the characters similarly represented my experience. I didn't have that sense of what Dr. Benjamin calls the overserved. And I They didn't mm-hmm. realize that was me. And I also didn't realize the impact of not realizing. And so it took me far too long to understand that sense of racialized self. And that is very much why I teach and live where I do now, in that I think there's a part of me that's kind of trying to go back to that younger version of myself Mm -hmm. and her before she makes mistakes, like exercising Mm -hmm. bigger complex and Peace Corps for two and a half years. (laughs) Um, And, and just not really walking through the world with the level of awareness and insight that I hope that my young people can walk through the world with. And so I believe both things can be true. I believe we can, as young people, go out and catch frogs and tadpoles and that we can have a sense of what's right and what's just and of ourselves as racialized beings. And that's kind of the the future, the reality that I hope that I can help foster For the young people in my life, um, in a way to like (laughs) regain that for the young person that I wasn't. Personal, personal, personal,
0: personal. I don't know if there's anything else I need to ask you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we're done.
0: (laughs) Like. Except I, that really, because I, I like talking to you. <laughs> you, like, honestly, like, I, then this goes back to just ever since I started, like, I guess following is a very interesting word, but, like, looking at everything <laughs> that you've been doing online, and, like, this is a, if you're listening, this is exactly who she is online. Like, she <laughs> is so well articulated, and she, what she said, she actually means. And honestly, like, I see it within the work that you're doing with your kids. And I, I think my next question is, how much of your childhood influences your um, education and how you're teaching your kids and what you're talking about? And you kind of touched on that um, a little bit through um, what you just mentioned. Um, maybe can you go a little bit deeper on like just specifics in regards to the content and how you are going about like your educational journey within the classroom?
1: Sure. So my... Childhood education was uh, fine, I might describe it as it was uninformed in some ways. And in other ways, I had teachers who were very relational and who cared deeply and who were invested in what has been a long running middle school movement here in the state of Vermont. And I think that's one of the reasons why I can so easily say that the middle school movement won't save us (laughs) because I'm a product of that movement and that movement really didn't do anything personally uh, for me to develop critical consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested now in scholars and amazing thinkers like um, Kathleen Brigadier, who is also similarly saying the middle school movement is great and also it needs infusion with critical consciousness. And without that, Mm -hmm. We're not going to get where we need to be. And so um, I am now a middle school teacher, which is my favorite thing. I really believe sixth graders will save us, which is not to say that I want to put the weight of the world on their shoulders and abdicate responsibility, but is to say that their potential for radical dreaming is incredible. I have the opportunity alongside my sixth graders to also teach a graduate course with one of my dear, dear friends and, and mentors, Paul Yoon. And one of the fascinating things is that I'm often introducing the same concept to our graduate cohort as I am to my sixth graders. And I love the graduate students in this course. They are willing to grapple with hard truths, they are willing to be vulnerable and bring their whole selves. They are remarkable. They're exactly what any educator would want in their student. And my sixth graders are so much more willing to grapple with the content Mm
0: -hmm. in
1: ways that, Transcends their understanding at a much faster clip. And I wonder if part of that isn't around the conditioning that hasn't yet been fully formed for them Mm -hmm. I see some students come in with some pretty thick armor, but for the most case It's it hasn't like crystallized yet. And so they're walking through this white world um, Regardless of the skin they're in Hasn't fully been able to form around them yet. Maybe they Mm -hmm. haven't like breathed in enough toxins and so Mm -hmm. In talking to them about things like the social construction of identity, they can grapple with it and make sense of it in ways that my graduate students are then, but wait, but wait, I thought science. (laughs) And and I don't I don't see that with my sixth graders who are able to understand things outside of this binary way of thinking in beautiful, transformative ways. And so Mm -hmm. I am so lucky to spend all my time with sixth graders. I think they keep me in a radical dreaming space in a Mm -hmm. way that feels really great and really generative.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And then I hope that I can bring back to the adult
0: communities that I'm part of. Wow. Wow. So what is, what is this, besides your past experiences, which obviously have influenced a lot of what you do um, in the classroom, who else, or what else like inspires you to continue like this journey? Um, Because a lot of what I see online and uh, the, people who are also, other people who are also trying to do this work, it's not easy. Um, <laughs> so like what else continues to inspire you to, to do the things that you do?
1: Yeah, I, so very selfishly, I truly believe that my own humanity is at stake. And I very much subscribe to um, Jonathan Metckel's understanding of dying of whiteness, and that whiteness is killing all of us just in different ways and at different paces. Um, I also am very inspired by Reverend Angel Keila Williams and others, the scholars behind Radical Dharma and this concept of collective liberation that is going to take all of us working in all of our different ways and all of our different sectors. And the really hard part of collective liberation is that means that everybody is coming on the journey. <laughs> Every, no
0: and matter sometimes,
1: what. <laughs> sometimes there are people I do not want to journey with. Um, <laughs> And what I also see is that when I, when I think about kind of my big question, which is like, what is my place? What is my place in this white body, in this work of radical liberation, uh, collective liberation? I think so often that my work in this place is to hold the hands and hearts of those people that I least want to walk this journey with mm-hmm. and figure mm-hmm. out how move forward together because i know that people have done that for me and that i imagine that i'm still that person for so many others and so i'm it means trying to find some sense of radical love connection uh to to folks that i would otherwise just like to argue with online (laughs) um and so a good a good friend of mine who um I don't know that I want to name drop her in this context. I don't know if she'd want to be named <laughs> But a few years ago, she uh, she is an amazing educator activist. Um, she does a lot of work with educators around the state, and and she is a woman of color who gets hit by a lot of uh, white rage, white fragility, white emotionality—the whole spectrum of white response—in a state where the teaching population in Vermont in 2012 was 97.1% white so that's a lot and so when she spends her when she opts into those spaces for this work that's a high level of emotional labor that she's opting into Mm -hmm. and so a few years ago we created what we call our tag in tag out system which is that i would attend uh, programs that she's offering not as a co-facilitator or anyone but just being there And in those moments where I'm attending, when there are times where folks wanna run up to her after with all their fragility, rage, and emotionality, she could talk for a couple of minutes and then she could quite literally tap out and I would tap into that conversation. Mm -hmm. And that has felt like one of the most um, generative partnerships and one of the ways that I can offer the most is by just saying like, I am very happy to tap in in moments when the people I love in my life, just like for their own well-being need to tap out because that is not the work that some of my dear friends need to be doing. And mm-hmm. I see that um, in my personal physical life here in the state, but I also see that in my online life in that in many cases, the behind the scenes of my option to engage with others is that I'm getting a message or a DM from um, often black women or friends of color who are saying like, can you come take care mm-hmm. of this situation? Cause I'm out, I'm done with it. Um, and uh... so- that feels like something that I can offer in this world and in this work, and so and very much inspired by that work of um, Reverend Angel and by the work of other white folks as well. I've I've needed white models, and so I think often about Allie Michael, who who wrote "Raising Race Questions," which still I reference often. Um, I think about the Jonathan Metzels, the Robin D'Angelos, the Ally Michaels, um, mm-hmm. and others who I can really learn alongside as well
0: wow that's so cool I I love the tap in tap out like I think (laughs) that is I like I don't know who that person is but it just sounds like an amazing (laughs) relationship and like for you two to to be able to have that and feed off of each other and understand each other um, it gave me goosebumps just knowing that that is happening and that you're like so like in it together Um, that's it for lack of a better word, that's really cool. Like, I like that. Um, I really, really love hearing it. that story. <laughs> um, Christy, what do you like to do for fun? Like, tell me something that, like, it's a weekend, you have a day off. What do you like yes. to do for fun?
1: Um, so, I really enjoy cooking. And the more bacon and the more fried egg, the better for me. Um, so, I love to cook. I love reading. I love getting together. I I feel like I kind of can't shut it off. It's very hard for me to separate my personal and professional existence, and so mm. I really love getting together with other educators who are also okay. doing some of this work. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> like conversations like these, I really enjoy. And then people are like, "What do you do in your social life?" I'm like, "What's that?"
0: <laughs> Talk about education. Such a thing.
1: Um, I don't know what that means. Um, so. I I spend a lot of time in this thinking space, and I enjoy that. I love reading. Um, yeah, going for tea with friends is mm-hmm. fabulous. Walking around outside there. So right now is sugaring season in Vermont, which means that uh, we have this perfect combination of warm days and cold nights, where the mm-hmm. sap is flowing in sugar maple trees. And so, I have a good friend Lynn who's a sugar maker, and I love spending time with her in the sugar house when the sap mm-hmm. is flowing boiling um and pretty soon the salamanders will migrate and I can't wait to see them so <laughs> I'm awesome. I'm very much still like the the kid in the pond catching the tadpoles. I, I don't think I've changed
0: very
1: much <laughs> except now I understand a little bit more of who I am
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you said everything first thing I thought it was like fried egg and like Asia is like the place like they, yes, I I they there. <laughs> and I honestly, like, I never, I used to like eggs just like kind of for breakfast until I came to Asia and I was like, yes, I will put an egg on absolutely everything. Everything. <laughs>
1: egg goes on everything.
0: I agree. I totally agree. So whenever you're ready, and I've, we've been influencing trying to influence everyone to come visit us. So whenever you're ready, yes. You take your time. We will have a place you. for you. <laughs> Don't worry.
1: Watch out cuz I will really come.
0: Hey, we <laughs> you, we would love you. Honestly, <laughs> we'll take That's
1: you a, in. Fabulous.
0: <laughs> so t- let's go back a little bit to like your like schooling. Um you talked to Let's talk a little bit about like your high school. Um mm-hmm. what did that look like for you? And let's start with maybe a teacher that may have um, either influenced you or kind of impacted you in like a positive way?
1: So I had a, what I call like a split schooling experience.
0: Mm-hmm. When
1: I finished middle school, I didn't have perhaps, I hadn't perfected the executive functioning skills
0: I that, <laughs> that, <means. laughs>
1: many, that I realized that most middle schoolers don't have. But at the time, I think there was concern for like, I'm not very organized and mm-hmm. what's up with my work? memory and am I motivated enough and so in in at that time my parents did what I think a lot of really thoughtful caring families do is they they had an opportunity to look outside of the public school system and see maybe this would be better and so I I mm-hmm. spent the first years of my high school experience at a catholic school here in vermont it was i i deeply understand my parents intention behind the choice it was not at all the right fit for me. So, it, and in many ways, it was because of what was happening social, sociopolitically. So mm-hmm. it was at a time in the state of Vermont when the conversation about civil unions was happening, which was the precursor to marriage equality. And I grew up in the Episcopal Church, which had just anointed its first openly gay bishop and was having a lot of conversations on Sunday, open conversations about what it means to love everyone, and what it means to be fully accepting of the people Mm -hmm. that we are and then i would go from that church experience with my family into the experience of being at a catholic school where at that time people were still saying that if you were gay you were going straight to hell and so it was this time of like just deep deep disequilibrium and my like pre-adolescent adolescent adolescent brain was just not making sense of it and and Mm -hmm. that Came with a which, lot of rage which
0: makes sense
1: <laughs> yeah right like how i don't get it i don't understand this. and so i was going through those first two years of high school feeling very disconnected from my education because i just didn't trust the adults that were that i was receiving it from even the adults in that space who weren't preaching in that same way i knew like were complicit and i didn't have the language for it then i didn't understand then that we are responsible for what happens within our school buildings, but I had the lived experience for it. And so I didn't trust the adults who were guiding my education because I didn't trust what they were saying about the people that I loved in my life. Um, and so after two years, I, my parents were, were listening and understood that that wasn't working for me and I had the opportunity to go back to the public school uh, Vermont has excellent public schools. And so I went to a school, um, CVU, which is which still exists. It's a, a high school that's right down the road from the school I teach at. And I took a class with Amy Rock and Becky Wigglesworth, and the title was The Holocaust and Human Behaviors. Um, and that class completely transformed my understanding of what education could be. Because I, I felt, I think now the words that I, I was looking for then is the, the work in language around curriculum violence um, that's being written about now. And oh goodness, do I want to cite that scholar? So I might look her up a little later in this conversation to give her credit Mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, thinking about being in a space where um, through curriculum, like hatred was being preached and then going into a space where educators were openly talking about the responsibility that we each have, and how abdicating that responsibility can go way up that ladder into like actual genocide against others, mm-hmm. and the you know there's a couple ways of conceiving of that event, and um, I later went on to get my masters in um, Holocaust and genocide studies oh, as my wow. focus. And that was like that Talk was the way it, really, it, it had some influence. And wow. so, you know, some people follow the a track of anti-Semitism and really connecting back to the way in which the Jewish diaspora has been constantly a scapegoat for other folks' hatred. And then there are other scholars who connect it back to looking at genocide studies over time and what happens if we study the Armenians, what happens if we look at what's happened since in Rwanda, what's happening um now across the world and other places. And so Um, my teachers did a really good job grappling with both of those things, with looking at the line of anti-Semitism and also looking at what um is maybe kind of horribly described as comparative genocide, but this idea of like how do we how do we conceptualize of mass violence on this huge scale? And then how do we make sense of that mass violence through these everyday, seemingly minor decisions that that people are making? And so, really, like, what does it mean to be complicit in in massive violence? And so um, through that class, we talked often about like, what is complicity in our own experience of of school and how we treat one another. Um, and so that was a really transformative experience. And then the other one that I remember so well is having an, a history teacher, um, Clough. And uh, 9-11 happened when I was in high school, September 11th. And I remember it as a time of blind patriotism pretty soon after like flags went up everywhere mm-hmm. pledge of elites came back and i was so fortunate to have a teacher who was willing to stop and question that patriotism and to encourage us to question it too and to say like pledging to what and for what purpose and why like what is the motivation of our government right now in getting all of us to blindly follow the iconography of this country and what is that leading us toward? And so you know, he could see what was coming. He could see that we would enter into war against other people on, in other land and we would justify it through this blind patriotism. Mm-hmm. And so I remember this day where across the whole country there was this moment of, of silence followed by the Pledge of Allegiance. And um, he encouraged us to think again about like, what are you pledging to? And so I remember that the ask was for all students to go into the hallway at this specific point in time to be quiet, to pledge. And I remember in that moment looking around and several of my classmates and I just sat down as wow. like one of maybe my first acts of civil disobedience. <laughs> um, and and wow. I remember being like, since that time, being so deeply grateful to have had an educator who was willing to engage in that critical dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that must have been a risk for him. I think about what it would take for me to to be doing that same teaching, and I, I hope I am embodying some of that same teaching.
0: Personal. 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 Personal, personal. Personal, personal. Personal 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 Person. Personal. Personal, personal, personal. Personal. Personal.
1: And I didn't appreciate then what a risk that he was taking. Um, but I could recognize again that like I didn't have the language for it, but I had the lived experience for it. so I knew in my body that that was the kind of teaching that I wanted to engage with.
0: What a like that's that was quite some time. It feels like it was quite some time ago, and I guess it was. But the the power and the impact that it still has on today, it's unbelievable. And for that teacher to be able to set that example then, when you're almost like you're 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 looked so much down upon when you are not. You're so much on the other side of everything that wow. Like, do you know of what this teacher's up to now? Have you? Um, is it? Are they? I someone... Yeah, I think that's... I, I should think... find out.
1: I know that he's retired. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he's still around. Um, mm-hmm. I believe that his son has gone into teaching, and I'd be really curious to see what his pedagogy is.
0: What's his name, if you don't mind <laughs> me asking? Fred Cluff. Cluff. Okay, let's shout him out. Shout out. He's listening out yes. there. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go. That's awesome, Christy, Just a few more questions, and I think, <laughs> again, honestly, ask, talking to you in like online has been, been very very refreshing for me. And um, again, I think one of the things I think that, I guess for selfish reasons, I want to ask is, um, how did the relationship between, how did Clear the Air happen for you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put it out there. <laughs> how did it happen for me? Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, so first of all, Val Brown is just a remarkable genius um who i'm so fortunate to have in my life in all of the ways um and yeah i i can't say enough about about val and the community that she fosters and creates and cultivates so i remember i was 2016 the election had happened um i was feeling a lot of feelings as were i think so many people at that time i was in a relationship with Muhammad, um, who had called it from the beginning, he he saw what was happening in a way that I hadn't. And so that night of the returns coming in, he was not in a state of surprise, um, and I was. And so there was a lot going on interpersonally as well as politically. Um, in that, you know, Muhammad wasn't sure he wanted to stay in this country watching mm-hmm. those election results back in, which makes a lot of sense. For someone with Iraqi citizenship, um, and what does that mean when your partner is thinking of leaving and then heading to school the next day, having not slept all night? Anyway, so there's there's a lot about the Clear the Air story that for me is also wrapped up in 2016, and so I remember being at my parents' house. I remember like the chair I was on. It was oh. it's funny you mentioned that like the moment in my high school that for the Clear the Air moment feels as solid. And so I remember I had been following Val on Twitter. Um, we weren't yet mutually connected at all. And mm-hmm. she tweeted something about like, we have to talk. <laughs> we being everybody, right? Like the, the conversation that has never happened in this country, the, the conversation that we in, this, in the United States have so um, often sought to ignore or pretend that we've had, like, it just has to happen. And so she put out a call to like, we got to have this conversation. And I remember seeing that in real time and saying, I'll talk with you.
0: <laughs>
1: and, and so the first, um, the first view, I think were kind of like a pop-up situation and it was more of like, let's just have a conversation. I've got questions. I being Val and just showing up and engaging. And, and then because of her brilliance and beauty, I think it was, and understanding that there were so many people that were really thirsty for this conversation. There were folks like me and white bodies who grew up not having it. I think Mm -hmm. other folks who grew up having it and wondering why other people weren't. And so Mm -hmm. what does it look like to really engage um, specifically in interracial space around the conversation questions that um, this country, uh, many people in it just haven't been grappling with it. So what does it mean? to exist in land that was uh, built off of genocide and, and chattel slavery and just not name that. Um,
0: wow.
1: what are the legacies of that in this space. And so, so and and what is the practice maybe of healing through bringing some of those conversations and truth to fore is something that I wonder about too. And so Clear the Air has, I feel very proud to have been in it from that original tweet that Val offered. Mm-hmm. and. And really thankful now that I, I feel like some of my closest friends have come out of that space. And, mm-hmm. you know, I talk to Marion pretty much every day. And wow. uh, Lizzie has been such an important person in my life lately as I'm like navigating being in and out of new relationships and mm-hmm. the world of online dating, which is a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> so I feel like just these relationships are so critically important to me. And, mm-hmm. Continue to shape me into who I am and that's that's very much because of the brilliance of that space and, and clear the wow. air and, and all does
0: wow and I and I, I asked because I know I just remember a while ago quite some time ago her just mentioning like how long or how far like clear the air has come and she yeah. mentioned you and how um, there are certain people that have been around since like day one which was like again seems like it's so long ago but not really at the same time and <laughs> for someone to really invest their time to open up and share and have a conversation not just about like other people but also about themselves yeah um, it's just so like powerful and then to see the growth within all of that and you're able to look back at that experience and see how much you've learned how much you've grown from it um, and now that your voice like actually matters like I think um, for people like me and my wife who often are checking out the tweets and following as much as possible like we look just as much for you as we're looking for everybody else so I think it's a testament to the work that you've put in um, on yourself and like the reflecting um, sometimes we forget that reflecting is really important <laughs> yes. right um, but we you are stop. definitely um, a breath of fresh air. So we appreciate uh,
1: your friend. voice. You're being sure. way too generous. Thank no, you. No, it's That's true. It's it's, it's honestly nice. it's,
0: it's true. It's really, really true. Where can people find you?
1: Oh, please find me on Twitter at Christy Noltz, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E-N-O-L-D. Um that's my only social media but I'm there a lot so come find me. And I my DMs are open. My messages are open and that is purposeful. And so especially for other white folks who are looking to connect and say like what is happening, I don't have all the answers at all. I might not have any answers, <laughs> but I do have a willingness to like learn and engage alongside people and try to do better. And so That is why my messages are open and I welcome conversation either publicly or privately. And the other thing I want to say about that, about making mistakes, is that I really, um, I'm thinking about, I think it was Dr. Adrian Keene who talks about this willingness to um, learn publicly. And I really want to embrace that. And so if there are moments or times when my foot is in my mouth, especially if I don't see it or recognize it, I I see accountability as a true gift and offering. And so I just wanna say that I I really welcome that. And I I hope folks will feel willing to hold me in accountability in in whatever shape or form that has to take.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I think that's something that a lot of us are continuing to understand and be okay with because you know, just as much as I do online can be it can be very much a happy place today and an angry and upset and vicious place tomorrow. Um, yeah. And I think us as educators who are constantly sharing content and sharing how we feel online, it's important that we call each other out sometimes. Um, That's right. In ways that are, are honest with each other because if we are all on this journey of liberation and making things, helping our kids understand, A lot of these tough situations, um, we need to be able to have conversations with each other. So um, I totally, 100% agree with you. I'm here for you.
1: Absolutely. Oh, I'm here for you. And I'm going to literally go there and we're going (laughs) to eat all the fried eggs. And is there an episode in which someone interviews you for this podcast? No. (laughs) Well, then I think that we will eat fried egg. I will interview you for your own po- Or I will find someone more skilled to interview
0: you for your own. No, we, I'm writing this down right now. You are going to, I'm writing it down right now. You will interview me yes. for my own podcast. Done. I really think
1: that has to happen because the whole time you're asking these questions, my gut instinct is to say, now you have to tell me about your.
0: <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. I've never actually, I, a few people have tried to turn the pages a little bit. <laughs> But I, I've gotten really good at like flipping it back. So
1: I believe you. So let's just make a time and a process Done. for that not We to can totally
0: to do that. We can totally do All right. Do that. Christy, it's thank happening. you so much. This is so much fun. This is You're so amazing. much fun. This is so much fun. I'm going <laughs> to. It's about to get personal, y'all.